RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather Podcast. As always, we are here in Lawfather Studios in Lawfather Headquarters. And as always, big thank you to Radio Influence for always putting together a great show and putting together our videos that you see if uh, you check out our YouTube page. So please go ahead and check those things out. Also, check us out on social media. And uh, this is also being streamed on Clubhouse Live. So uh, I guess you can ask questions there. But take a look at that. Anyway, let's uh, let's jump right into it today. So I want to talk about little something that happened uh, here over the weekend, and let's we'll tie that right back into the legal world because seemingly everything that goes on in life has some tie-in back to the legal world, which is what we generally talk about here, and put it to you like this. We were, uh, there was a group of guys of us, we were supposed to go over to New Orleans and uh, had a, a group that, big fishermen, so long story short, we're supposed to be a fishing trip uh, down near the oil rigs in New Orleans. Well, luckily it turns out because the trip actually got canceled uh, before the hurricane was really known to be a big thing coming that way. Uh, this was uh, earlier last week. And then all of a sudden the hurricane popped up and you know our thoughts and prayers to Louisiana as a whole. Um, but you know, luckily for us, we ended up not being there. We would have been kind of stuck in the middle of it. But Brings us to the legal side and, and what happened over this past weekend, right? So here's what we had. We had a, a group of us, the same group that was supposed to go to New Orleans. We ended up staying local. Uh, one of the guys has a boat, so we took the boat. We, we didn't want to go out in the golf because the golf was supposed to be kind of a mess because, you know, there's that little hurricane that was coming up through that I was just talking about. So the bay was supposed to be uh, pretty decent. Which, going out in the morning, no problem. We went out from uh, Apollo Beach area straight over to St. Pete Pier. Pretty big boat, so it really wasn't an issue at all. And uh, we go, and as we're there, we see these storms rolling in the bay. And, and those of you who have been out on the water, you can actually kind of look up, and you can see all this weather coming, right? It's usually not a, a huge surprise when, when you see weather, right, it doesn't usually just pop up on you in an instant. You can usually, if you're paying attention and you're out on the water, you can see where it's coming from. Now, is there the, the times where, yeah, something does kind of pop up out of nowhere? Yes, but this wasn't one of those times. You could see it coming in. So anyway, we, we decided, hey, you know, we'd check the radar and go, yeah, there's a little opening here in, in a little bit. And so we're going to just wait it out at the pier. So we went inside at the pier, uh, went to one of the restaurants over there and man, you could see the white caps and how rough that bay had become. I mean, we went from maybe one, one and a half foot swells, uh, as we were going, which really isn't bad. And they were pretty far spaced out. So it was a pretty smooth trip out there to, they had to be between four and five feet. These, uh, these swells that we were looking at from the pier and we were a little high up. So they may have actually even been a little bit higher. I actually sent a picture to my wife and said, geez, if this doesn't stop, I'm going to take an Uber home. Uh, by the way, my car was in Apollo beach. So that was going to, going to be an expensive Uber ride. But anyway, we watched the weather, watched the weather, see a break in the weather, watch the bay. Bay's really calmed down, you know, you know, probably one and a half to two foot swells for the boat that we're in. No big deal. No problem. So we're headed back. We're on our way back to Apollo beach and we kind of look off in the distance and you know, one of the guys on the boat 
kind of pointed out, and we all kind of stand up and, and look up and see we see this little white thing bobbing in the water, which there were white caps, so a little white thing bobbing in the water, not necessarily, you know, much difference in, in what you would see because, well, white caps are white, and uh, turns out bottom of boats are white also. Um, those of you who don't know much, you know, about boats, um, boats that are kept in the water are generally painted black because of barnacles. And uh, most other boats that are kept out of the water that are trailered, smaller boats generally are white on the bottom. That's your little boat lesson for the day. So anyway, we all look up and we see this little tiny, tiny red thing on top of this white thing that now we're saying, okay, maybe that's not a white cap. Maybe that's something else. So we go, okay, well, let's go to it and find out. Well, turns out that white thing was the bottom of a boat. And that red thing was a flare. And uh, it was a family of six people on the boat, okay? Little 19-foot boat, flipped over, capsized, and they're holding on to the bottom of the engine where the, uh, where the propeller sits. Yeah. Little baby, teenager, and four adults all huddled around and basically holding on for dear life. So, um, no, literally holding on for dear life. Um, kind of something you might see in a movie. So anyway, after God took us, I don't know, felt like an eternity, but probably 15, 20 minutes or so to navigate the boat into a position to get them onto the boat. Uh, it seems easy. Those of you who've never been on a boat, it, it's not as easy as it looks because you have waves. And, and you know, the bay was still kind of churned up. It wasn't as bad as it had been, but it was still churned up. So you have waves and currents and wind. And, oh, by the way, two floating boats that you don't want to crash into each other because you don't want anybody trapped in between it. So it's a long process, right? Long story short, we got everybody from their boat onto our boat. In the meantime, we had one of the guys calling the Coast Guard. Coast Guard came out, took the people off the boat, and got them checked out. They were on the water for over an hour. They were not on the water. They were, they were capsized and hanging on for over an hour. They were on their last flare. What that red thing was, was a flare. Okay? So, brings us to this. And, and it turns out everybody was fine. Baby was fine. Um, teenager was fine. Adults were all fine. I, I talked to the guy whose boat it was uh, sometime later that night and everything, everybody's good. Everybody's fine. So real good, happy ending to that story. Okay. Might not have been. So here's a couple takeaways and here's where we're going to bring it, bring it back into the legal realm, right? Because, Hey, we're a legal show. We should probably talk about legal things, but I think it's important to tell a story like that for a couple of reasons right? From both sides of the fence. One, what should you do and what should you have? Okay. And what considerations should you take? Because quite frankly, it should have never happened. Okay. And on the other side of it, those of us that were in the boat that I was in, what kind of legalities exist for that? So let's take a little bit of a, of a dive into those things. So from the legal standpoint, being the captain and the owner of the boat that had capsized, what do you need to have? There's a, there's a laundry list of things. Flares are your bare minimum, okay, in terms of for a situation like that. Now, luckily, this guy, he had a, a floatable box that he had his flares in, a floatable hard box, uh, water-type box, okay? It's actually made specifically for this purpose, that it floats to the top, boat capsizes, it floats to the top, it's, it's bright orange, reddish, right? So you can go grab it out of the water and light your flares off. Okay. So that's what he had. That's a requirement with the Coast Guard. Okay. I would say 
Go go get additional flares. Make sure that you have a way to be seen because you would think, man, there's all these boats passing by. We were the only boat that was out there, and we we just we had to get back to Apollo Beach. We were in St. Pete. We didn't really have the ability to go, oh, we'll just do it tomorrow, right? We'll make the trip back tomorrow. So um, we had to wait for an opening, and but we did it where, where we know where we knew that we were going to be safe. Uh, there were several of us who have a, a lot of boat training. Uh, the Our driver was actually a, um, a certified or licensed as a captain. So uh, I felt really comfortable from that perspective. But beyond what is required to be on the boat, which the flares for that, for that particular instance, they, they make other things, uh, some battery-operated things that when they hit the water, they light up. Probably a good thing to have. The more visible you can be, the better off you're going to be. But... You know, from from another standpoint, okay, check the weather, check the tides, check the currents. This is a 19-foot boat that had six people on it, okay? Pro- the boat may have actually been close to – it probably wasn't overloaded in a sense because the Coast Guard numbers for capacity of boats seem to be more than what you can actually comfortably fit on a boat. But keep in mind – all these other factors. And, and my guess is, and I don't know this, but my guess is there were a couple of people sitting on the bow of the boat and you had these four to five foot white cap waves that were coming up in the bay and the bow of that boat between the weight of people. And like I said, I don't know if anybody was in the bow, but I would guess that there were the weight of the people there plus the size of the waves drove the bow down under the water or the waves broke over the bow because it was being held down. And that's what flipped the boat. Now, I, I know that from talking to the captain of that boat that the waves came over, right? The, the bow of the boat filled with water, whether it, it dove down or whether the waves broke over top of the boat. We know, and I know that's why that boat capsized because that's what, um, that's what we were told from uh, a firsthand account of it. Watch your weather, okay? Really, never should have been out there. They floated probably a mile from where they actually capsized, okay? Um, So, and they, apparently he had decided somewhere just before they capsized that maybe they should turn around, Um, but they were far enough out that it it was going to be a problem. So, keep that in mind, okay? Now, the point of the legal side that I want to get into is the Good Samaritan side of things, but also keep in mind as a boat captain, you are ultimately responsible for every single person in that boat, and you could be held liable for the injuries for anybody who was in that boat when it capsized, okay? So there's your legal side there, but from a, a real-life side, watch your weather, watch your currents, watch your waves, have all the safety equipment, okay? Life preservers, flares, go the extra mile. If you can afford a boat and you can afford boat fuel, you can afford the safety equipment. And these they had life jackets and they had flares, okay? So not a knock to them, um, but I think for me it was a wake-up call to maybe get more along the lines of, of the stuff that helps you be found, okay? Helps you call the Coast Guard, right? If they had a portable floatable radio, could have called the Coast Guard and it, it wouldn't have been a, a really long trek. It wouldn't have been any less scary, okay? But they wouldn't have been out there as long. So now... Let's flip the scenario, okay? Let's let's flip let's flip sides on the scenario, and let's look at the boat that I was in, okay? Could there be any liability for us, right? Could there be any liability for the captain of the boat that we were in, right? Could we individually hold any liability? And unfortunately, the answer is yes. 
Okay, so kind of a crazy thought that we could have liability in this. Now, let's look at how that comes about. So a couple different pieces at play. There is Florida law and there's the Federal Boating Safety Act. Okay. And it's with where we were, um, you'd have to draw some lines and, and truly determine which one takes over. Um, my guess is that the Federal Boating Safety Act um, takes over with where we were because we were in navigable waters at the bay. Um, I don't think we were close enough in for it to be considered um, to be considered uh, anything other than that. But just keep in mind, I, I don't necessarily practice maritime law. So, but we were, I mean, we were not far from, you know, we were about a mile, mile and a half from the pier. So let's look at the two pieces, right? Because, hey, a situation like that may never come up in your lifetime, may never come up again in my lifetime. I really hope it doesn't. Um, but anyway, the, what's, what's more likely to happen, okay? So let's look at the more likely to happen to you is... You come across them. You come across a car crash. You come across an emergency just in your everyday life. What are your rights and responsibilities? Where are you held legally liable? So from the Florida perspective, it's really difficult to hold you liable. Number one, you have no affirmative duty whatsoever in the state of Florida to act. And what, what an affirmative duty means is that there's nothing that says if you see an emergency that happens in the state of Florida that you have to do anything. Nothing that says that whatsoever. Okay, so you could see a horrific car crash, you could walk right past it, move on, and you can't be liable, even if you walking past it resulted in that person being more hurt. Okay, so keep that in mind. Now, what Florida has also said is, unless you do something really, 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 really crazy, and and usually that is kind of earmarked for medical professionals, Okay, that they have to do some because they medical professionals are actually afforded the same protections as a layperson is when it comes to the Good Samaritan Act in Florida. So unless you do something really, really, really egregious, right, really bad, willful and wanton, and, and it even takes a step beyond that in the way the statute is written, you can't be held liable for any additional injuries that come as a result. Okay, so you're a layperson, you come up on a car and um, you go, hey, I'm going to help this person get out. And they turn out they have a neck or a back injury and you make it worse by helping them get out of the car. You can't be held liable for that, okay? Um, it, that, it's just how it is. Now, let's say um, it's a doctor and they come up and they start twisting that person's neck to get them out of the car and they have a neck injury. Um, that, that could be something that could get that medical professional into a little bit of hot water from a liability standpoint because they should know they shouldn't twist and turn and, and pull on that neck. Now, even if they pull the person out because they go, hey, I thought that car was going to catch fire. And one of the things that, and we're going back to my law enforcement days of, of training and these type of things, you know, you leave the person there unless there's another imminent danger that's worse, right? Um, the potential of a car catching fire is worse. So you help that person out, right? Because, hey, them catching fire and blowing up would be worse than having a spinal potential spinal injury. Okay. So that's how, how that works. Now let's bring this back to our boating scenario. Okay. And federal law and maritime law has a similar thing. Okay. They don't call it the good Samaritan act. It's the federal boating safety act. And 
Look, you, if you act in good faith, if you come up on the scene of a crash, a vessel collision, an accident, or another casualty without the, without the objection of the person that needs assistance, you won't be held liable for any act or omission in providing or arranging salvage, towage, medical treatment, or other assistance where the assistant, assisting person acts as an ordinary, reasonable, prudent person would have acted under the same or similar circumstances. What does that all really mean? Okay. When you're on the water and you are a good Samaritan and you go and help somebody, but that something goes wrong, you can be liable. Okay. Let's think about, let's, let's take injuries out of it for the moment. Okay. You're on the water, someone runs aground, you come up to them and you go, hey, buddy, you want me to help you out? I'll, I'll tie up uh, you know, a line from my boat to your boat, pull you off, and uh, you'll be good to go, right? Yeah. Let's say in the course of that, you damage their boat. Guess what? They can sue you. Yep. And be successful. That statute has no teeth, no protection really for you if something happens. It says it does. But it really does. It doesn't in practice in real life. That protection is really very, very minimal. Okay. Now, as I mentioned before, the state of Florida and the Good Samaritan Act doesn't give you an affirmative duty to act. You don't have a responsibility to act. Okay. You don't have a responsibility to help somebody. Okay. But on the water, you do. And it's under one circumstance. Okay. Just one. Well, and it, 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 I may be oversimplifying it, okay? But the example that I just gave, the someone runs aground, okay? That's not an affirmative duty to act on that. You can go, hey, how you doing, buddy? Called the Coast Guard for you. They'll be right out. Or, hey, buddy, I called uh, Towboat USA or Towboat US, and they're on their way out, right? Now, from a, from a logistical standpoint, from a legal standpoint, that's what you should do, Okay. Just to protect you, if you want to stick around there and, you know, make sure nothing bad happens, right? Like anybody falling in the water or anything, great, cool, have at it. But uh, my recommendation from the legal side of things, man, you just call Towboat US for them and, and have them come on out, okay? So if a recreational boater finds and comes across a distressed boater at sea, and is in danger of being lost, okay, being lost at sea, i.e. a capsized boat with a whole family holding on to the engine, you have an affirmative duty, which means you have an obligation to help those people, okay? So there's the difference. Really life-threatening, you have an obligation, okay? Not really life-threatening, you have no obligation, all right? Now, do you have the same protections? Yeah, it's your, your legal ramifications can be equally as bad on that side. But, you know, it'd be hard pressed. I think I, I think you'd have a good defense case against it because you're helping someone who is in danger of being lost at sea. OK, so unless you do something really egregious, OK, um, leaving your prop on and, you know, as they're boarding the boat and a wave hits and something happens, right? That, that would be bad, okay? And that is where that could come into play. So 
know what your legal ramifications are. Some of it flies in the face of um, what some of us would ever want to do. Luckily for these people, this was never the legal side of it was never really a thought for us. You had a boat full of um, current HCSO members and retired HCSO members, right? So a lot of, a lot of cops on that boat and a lot of people who just said, Hey, uh, we actually had one person who was active duty in the uh, national guard as well. So, you know, we had a a lot of people on that boat who have been trained in situations like this and we're kind of ready to go and ready to help. So, um, that is what the Good Samaritan laws look like and um, what you need to be aware of while you're out on the water. Okay, so keep those couple things in mind when you're out there. Get plenty of safety equipment. Get plenty of flares. Look into splurging for some of those lights maybe that come on uh, when they hit the water. They're not all that expensive. If you can afford a boat and the fuel, you can afford the safety things. Make sure everybody has a life jacket. That really, honestly... Um, could have been a big thing in this and keep in mind that yeah even in the middle of th- middle of summer that they were out there for over an hour there was major concerns for hypothermia okay and that was one of the big things that the coast guard was worried about so keep all those things in mind and uh, that is what good samaritan laws look like and maritime law all right so let's switch gears a little bit and let's look at a listener question okay and this is kind of uh Right in line with what we have going on right now with a couple of mediations and uh, global settlement conferences. How is pain and suffering compensation calculated? Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward, right? Yep, you would think, okay, well, uh, I have this injury and this is how I'm going to be compensated for it from a pain and suffering standpoint. Yeah, wrong. Okay, just flat out wrong. There is no exact metric that tells us what pain and suffering equals, okay? Uh, I do a lot of case law research, and I've tried cases before, and you know how we determine pain and suffering, right? If we're in trial, we determine it based on the type of jury we have. We determine it based on who we have, and, and we know the occupation of the jurors. We know the county that we live in, Okay, or not that, excuse me, not the county that we live in, but the county that we're trying the case in, okay? And we use those factors to try to come up with a pain and suffering number, okay? It's not an exact science. It's not an exact science whatsoever, okay? There's zero exactness to it. Now, what what does employment and where the trial is come into play? Well, if I'm in Miami-Dade County or Hillsborough County or Pinellas County, I can pretty, or even uh, Broward County, okay, parts of Broward County, uh, I can pretty much rest assured that my jury is going to put a higher amount on pain and suffering in the right case because the average income, the affluence of the area is a lot more, okay? If I go to some of the smaller rural counties, I have a case right now in Highlands County that I'm looking, I'm going, well, I got Highlands County. There's there's really nothing in Highlands County, right? Um, it's a very rural area. A lot of, lot of farmers, just not, it's not Miami-Dade, okay? It is, or, or West Palm and Broward, right? It is, pick the most affluent place in in Florida, okay? And I'm going to assume that's, that's going to be either Broward or Miami-Dade, right? And take almost the polar opposite of that. Now, from a pain and suffering standpoint, I look at it and I go, 
somebody in Highlands County is not going to, and I, and you have to make generalizations in this. So let me, let me take a step back. Okay. You have to take generalizations in this because you don't know personally, every single person who's going to be on your jury. Okay. But you look at it and you go, okay, the, somebody in Highlands County on a jury is not going to put the same value on a dollar as somebody in Miami-Dade County, right? If I go into Highlands County and I ask for a million dollars, I have a high, a better chance of getting shut down, okay? If I am in Miami-Dade County and I ask for a million dollars, I have a much better chance of getting it, okay? So, so think about it from that perspective. How does this all tie in to pain and suffering? Pain and suffering is abstract, okay? Pain and suffering is Salvador Dali. Go to the Salvador Dali Museum, and that is pain and suffering. I can take the same set of facts, present it to five different juries, okay, made up of six people each. That's a lot of people, right? And I could come up with several, I could come up with five different answers as to what pain and suffering is, right, in terms of the dollar value. So let's look at it like this. How would I present it? Because I think when we come down to when someone asks me how pain and suffering compensation is calculated, it has nothing to do with what I just explained. Okay. That's the long winded version of it. The short version is this is how I do it. And I've seen other attorneys do it other ways, but how do I, how do I measure pain and suffering? I look at minimum wage and I look at what injuries my client has. Okay. Minimum wage right now is $8 and change in the state of Florida. I believe it's like 844 or something along those lines. Uh, I would ask Jason, but Jason owns restaurants and it's a completely different ball game for restaurants. Um, but it's, it's in that neighborhood of, of $8 and 44 cents somewhere in that vicinity. And if I have essentially a run of the mill case, okay, no surgery, um, nothing major, just, just injuries. Okay. I'm going, Hey, I, you know, from the date of the crash to the date of my demand or trial, that person was in pain, say, two hours a day. And I take the amount of days that exist in between, and I figure $8.44 times two, and multiply that by the amount of days. And that gives me my pain and suffering number. Usually, it's in the few thousands because we're talking usually about a six-month period. And then, after that, what I do is I look at what we call the future pain and suffering. And so, from the date of the demand to the person's life expectancy. And and I generally, it depends, right? If we're in trial, we'll actually have an expert who will have done a life care plan who will tell us this person is expected to live until they're 88 years old. And these are the amount of days that exist in between. If we're not in trial, what I'll do is I'll use the social security calculator. It's not by no means an exact science. It just asks if you're male or female and what, what your birth date was, right? But it at least gives me a basis. And I go, okay, I have X amount of days. I have, this person's going to live for, I don't know, 10,000 more days, let's say. And I take Florida minimum wage and on a run of the mill case, I go, this person is going to experience some sort of pain for one hour each day for the rest of their life. And I multiply that one hour times the $8.44. And that tells me my future pain and suffering. Okay. Lawyers do it different ways, just like juries calculated in different ways. Lawyers calculated in different ways. But I use this method, and this is something that I don't remember if I actually heard this in a conference or if I came up with this myself. Okay, uh, I think it's probably a combination of a conference and you know some of my ideas of how to put things together. But it gives 
an adjuster, gives an insurance adjuster something they can hang their hat on, something they can understand. It's not just saying, I need $100,000 for pain and suffering because I think it's worth $100,000 for pain and suffering, okay? Or a jury. Hey, jury, I think the pain and suffering is worth $100,000, right? So, boom, just $100,000 line item. Well, people can't generally wrap their head around that, all right? So, the key here is I'm giving them something they can wrap their head around. I start with, hey, it's one hour a day for the rest of their life. Is it worth it for you? to be in pain for one hour a day for the rest of your life? And if it is, are you willing to take the Florida minimum wage for that amount? Okay. And by the time I've gotten them to think about it and go, I can buy into that concept, then I hit them with the big number, right? Because you don't necessarily think about when you hear $8.44 times however many days it is, two, three, four, 5,000 days, right? And you go, Oh, well, that equals $100,000, but you've already gotten that buy-in to this is how I got there, okay? So that's how I measure pain and suffering. I measure pain and suffering based on Florida minimum wage. The more injured you are, the more hours I give you per day, and which means the more the value of that pain and suffering is because those hours per day, I'm basing on the Florida minimum wage. So, hey, the value of our cases are going to go up in Florida minimum wage. It's $15 an hour. So those of you who voted for it, thank you. Um, and uh, that'll help us from that perspective. Hopefully jurors uh, will see it from that perspective as well. But that is how I calculate pain and suffering. Uh, I'm going to use it in a mediation here. I have a mediation tomorrow. I have a global settlement conference today. I have a mediation tomorrow. And during that mediation, I have my chart and I'm going to spell it out just like I spelled it out for you. So that is how pain and suffering is calculated. Is the law father here. Thanks for listening. Law father out.